Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to chapel today. Today's our cultural engagement chapel. And uh, in just a moment, I'll be introducing Dr. Daryl Bach. But uh, let's just bow for a word of prayer for now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that uh, we get to be here and that we get to be in this chapel. And I do pray that you would help us to engage with this chapel. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless our time together. And everything that's said and done, Father, we offer it up to you for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. amen. And this is Dr. Daryl Bach, and uh, take it away. All right. Thank you, Joe. Um, well, welcome to our cultural engagement chapel. Our topic today is going to be um, language that we use to describe the theological discussions that we have. Is this biblical? Is this heretical? Is it unbiblical? And how do we work with that? And to kind of, uh, and you can see my uh, experts here, uh, uh, you know, emerge from the systematic theology department, Drs. Kreider and Spiegel, and um, whenever we want to create trouble, that's who I invite to the table. So, uh, um, so let, me re let me read you an email uh, I received, oh, uh, well, actually early this month that, um, that kind of puts, a, put, puts the topic on the table. It says, the seminary and the table, and I have permission from this student, by the way, to, to share this with you, so I, I thank that person whose gender will remain nameless. Uh, the seminary and the table have really opened my eyes as far as the diversity of ideas across evangelicalism that I had never thought of before and that I think I've censored. My ideas, uh, my ideas and my upbringing protected me from thinking about these um, from myself. I've seen that there seems to be a rich plurality of ideas within the bounds of orthodoxy that I think my denomination would quickly deem heretical, which can mean anything from apostasy to that idea or question makes me uncomfortable. Many seem to be comfortable with labeling these ideas as orthodox and anything against it as punishable by burning at the stake. Also, I also think it's important to point out that the false teaching in which uh, point out the false teaching in what others have said and protect the flock by removing their books from shelves or simply urging the weaker brothers among us to stay far away from any of their books or sermons because they're clearly antichrists here to scrape away some of the elect and accompany them in their journey back into the pit of hell. Uh, part of the reason I like this email is because it didn't, uh, it was so subtle in how it went about raising the question. <laughs> so, uh, Hopefully, I've made it clear that I'm a little confused and torn. Knowing all of this, is there a way or a starting point when we step into service or a conference or a class or a book to know what ideas to filter into our faith and what to try and keep at arm lengths from? It seems to me that since everyone is fallible, it's probably not a good idea to filter something by teacher, since I've heard some secular songs allude to some things I would consider true. Is there a podcast? This is it, okay? <laughs> is there a podcast that covers the bare basis of our faith and holds that while still reading something or listening to something with a discerning mind, we're able to test things like Paul described while still looking at the distinctive that makes us Christian and answers people's questions, read their books, or works with the respect that affirms their dignity while acknowledging that their beliefs are different, be they Christian, atheist, Muslim, etc.? 
That's the question on the table. And so, uh, gentlemen, how do we think about the process of, uh, of theological discernment, and how do we talk about that in ways that people can engage the ideas that are present on the one hand, and yet think their way in a healthy way through all the options that are, that are out there? Let me start with step one, and that is to uh, not use the word heresy unless it is actually heresy. This is going to obviously feed into what is heresy and what is orthodoxy. But this term, and I've experienced this, we've all experienced it, the term heresy is thrown around uh, sometimes jokingly, sometimes very flippantly, or sometimes very seriously, and the definition is this is a view that my church or I don't agree with or that my clear reading of Scripture uh, you know, seems to indicate is wrong. So um, we generally try not to use the word heresy unless it is a an actual prolonged, stubborn, willful departure, knowing departure from the core of orthodoxy. And I, I know this is your practice yeah. as well. Yeah, I might say something very similar about the language of biblical. Um, the, the question, the real question is, how are you reading the Bible? Is, is your reading of the Bible orthodox or unorthodox? Every heretic has read the Bible, has had biblical support for their view. So that term biblical, we have to be careful not to use it as a shibboleth either. Yeah, that's right. And, and doctrines can be biblical, but not orthodox. If you've ever had a debate with a Jehovah's Witness or someone who is taking passages, uh, they are reading the more or less the same Bible as us, uh, translating it differently. Um, but there are also doctrines that are orthodox but not biblical. So we've seen people misread a text but kind of land in a, something that's true, you just can't get there from that passage, you know, the right doctrine from the wrong text. So we have to be careful about both of these terms, heresy as well as biblical. It seems to me that we use biblical in a variety of ways. One of them is to simply say, well, I'm, I'm having a t discussion about the Bible. It's right. kind of a very loose way of using it. But when, in these kinds of discussions, when biblical is used, uh, the word is it's from the Bible and I'm right. It's coming with and it's obvious, et cetera, which obscures all the interpretive elements and processes that are actually going on in the conversation. And a conversation that's probably worth having, not by a label, biblical or not, but right. by actually getting down and into the nitty gritty of what's being talked about. Correct. So when, when two people claim each of them claim that my view is biblical, that ought to lead to a conversation about reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that if we, if we use that as an opportunity to open the Bible and, and to look at it together, we, well, then we can actually have a conversation. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to speak about my favorite whipping boy right now, which is social media, because I think in particular when you see these exchanges on mm -hmm. social media, I, I did a Google search before the chapel, and the word heresy came up 5,453,222 times, and the word biblical came up you know, 12,452,335 times. Because of the live tweeters in the audience, it now is higher than <laughs> that. That's exactly right. And so, you know, so, so, and what I find happens with these terms, which I think this email is getting at is, is that we actually use these terms as a shield to have the discussions that we probably ought to be having. Is that, is that a fair, fair read in your mind in terms of, of how we can use and abuse these terms when we when we engage in theological discussion. Sure. Yeah, I think generally they they become an ender to a conversation. Mm -hmm. They're they're a weapon. They're a club. They're a, because we don't actually burn people at the stake anymore. Mm -hmm. We we uh, we just use these instead or mm -hmm. unfriend them. 
That's right. <laughs> that is burning at that the stake. Equivalent. That's burning at the digital stake. <laughs> That's right. So, um, so, so what? Uh, so, how do you? How do we? How do we think about the kind of question that's being asked here, which is the development of the of a discerning mind about theology? And I know you want you all want to distinguish between kind of the range of theological ideas that are out there. And and we, I think the way a way to think about this is think about the difference between what's called a centered set and a bounded set. A centered set is where something's at the center, at the core of something, and uh, and you say that's the that's the core stuff. That's the really important stuff, and then stuff that goes around it. A bounded set is worried about where the edges are, mm-hmm. and and making sure everything is defined. And then the tendency of a bounded set is to treat everything within the circle at kind of an equal level, whereas the idea of a centered set is no. These are these are more central to what's going on and core. And then the stuff as you move out from the center is kind of more open and discussable. Is this a good way to think about um, about this kind of a topic? Yeah, I think it's a way, It's a, and it's a good way, and these are not mutually exclusive. You can have boundaries mm-hmm. in a confession. Some may hold to a Westminster Confession as the boundaries for their community or the DTS doctrinal statement, but all of us acknowledge our very own doctrinal statement acknowledges that there are core doctrines in there that are the center of, of that ocean of, uh, of articles. So you have the bounded set and we, you know, the faculty signs the doctrinal statement every year, our agreement to that. Um, and if you don't, this is not the place for you, right? But at the same time, we acknowledge there's a center to that and it centers on, the way I describe the center of the Christian faith is the, the Trinitarian creation redemption narrative that centers on the person and work of Christ in his first and second coming. and to the degree that something contributes or is informed by that or is essential to that center, that increases its, uh, its centrality and we might say importance or its cruciality to the faith or what I sometimes describe as the, these are identity forging doctrines of the faith without which this is not Christianity. But we wouldn't, or most of us wouldn't say our view of the angels or our view of um, the timing of the rapture is part of that central core. And so keeping that in mind, there is such a thing as a boundary and there is such a thing as outside of the bounds of orthodoxy, but also within orthodoxy, we have to realize there are some things that are central and some things that are more peripheral in, 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 a, in a Pluto kind of orbit in many cases. When you have... Yeah, um, they're, they're both absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about, and Mike talks about the, the core and then these outer, uh, we might talk in terms of several concentric circles, but the, there has to also be a discussion of when we move from this, cent- this, this circle into this circle. And the boundaries are not always as clear and precise, but sometimes there's this cloud and this fog between here and here, but mm-hmm. you know when you're no longer in the circle mm-hmm. a- anymore. Uh, and there are all kinds of ways to, to talk about that. Uh, my students read Grenzen Olson, who talks about the difference between dogma, which is the central core, what I might say are the seven core doctrines that we hold here. Mm-hmm. Um, dogma then to doctrine, and I think they use confession. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk about, uh, let's find another D, maybe call that things, but about which we make decisions. Mm-hmm. We have dogma, doctrine, and then decisions. Mm-hmm. Or we might talk about the, the, what 
the creeds crystallize for us, and then there are confessions, Westminster, DTS, Baptists, and then there are things about which we hold convictions. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, baptism is a core Christian doctrine. There is one faith, one baptism. Uh, but different traditions practice baptism differently. Some pour, some, uh, some immerse, some sprinkle, some, there are different practices. Uh, and then we could talk about convictions. It might be something like the temperature of the water. Um, and although if you're being baptized as I was, when I was rebaptized into into baptistry where the heater didn't work, that third might be the most important. It suddenly, thing. <laughs> suddenly comes core, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have a way of describing this, uh, in and in, it's an illustration that works with seminary students and not anybody else because it's built off the apparatus of of the Greek <laughs> Testament. And you know, when, when, you, when you have the Greek Testament and you've got these variants, the UBS text writes them A, B, C, and D to communicate the certainty with which the textual decision is being made. A, we're virtually certain about this. D, it's really a tough call. That's the spectrum that you're dealing with. And I like to say, I, I view my doctrines, my view of doctrine similarly. A is, I'm so sure about this, I might argue with God about it like Peter did, you know. Uh, uh, B, B is, uh, I know we disagree, but I'm pretty sure I think I have this right. And then C is, um, if we get to heaven and I find out you're right, I won't be surprised. And D is, let's be honest and flip a coin, neither of us knows. And so there's this, there's this spectrum that you, and, and you attach to some degree, both depending on the doctrine where it's located in the in the mm -hmm. sphere that we're talking about, mm -hmm. and the nature of the decisions that go into deciding between the options, tells you how hard or how loosely to hold on to what it is that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I think that's a another way to think about this. Yeah, that's a there, there are a lot of good models, and you'll encounter a lot of good models. N no model is perfect, mm -hmm. and in fact, you probably need several to be able to understand the there's the uh, primary, secondary, tertiary kind of model. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that's they, they use that to dismiss whole areas of theology. Mm -hmm. So Trinitarian, Trinitarianism is primary and soteriology is primary, uh, but eschatology is tertiary. Well, the reality is if you have a, a centered model, there are some elements of eschatology that are crucial to the faith. Mm -hmm. Christ is coming back as God, as um, judge and king and he's going to raise the dead and this world is going to be made the way it was meant to be so we would say that's in a crucial part of the the narrative yes. and so there are certain but but the identity of the two witnesses in revelation 11 isn't mm, and so they're not so sure <laughs> depends on who those two guys are <laughs> so so you get the idea that yeah. it's I, you don't want to dismiss whole areas of theology because uh, you're putting them on a different shelf yeah. And some of those questions are both determined by the community in which we find ourselves mm -hmm. and are um, and determine the communities in which we find ourselves. So yeah, and, and of course, one of the tricky things that, that this question begins to get at, the email does, is of course, you know, when you're here, you're in a certain community and there are certain commitments that are mm. shared. But once you graduate and go out, <laughs> mm -hmm. anything goes in terms of what you're dealing with and encountering and having to make judgments about. By the way, let me remind you, we've got microphones set up. So if you have a question for the panel, do feel free to step forward and, and, uh, and ask it because I, I do think this is 
this is an important kind of, of topic to be uh, dealing with. So, so let's talk a little bit about, about the core. And, and I'm going to raise a question here that might deal with both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And, and it goes something like this. It's an observation I like to make about the older creeds and what I think is not there that's important. Um, and that is the older creeds were obviously formed. Um, now I'm thinking about creeds like the Nicene Creed were formed because of specific controversies mm -hmm. that triggered uh, why they were core confessions. And very, very valuable, essential. I'm in a church where we recite the Nicene Creed virtually every week. Um, but, but, um, but I read those creeds and I go, there, there's not a word about orthopraxy or how you respond to this core content, etc., which raises a whole nother question of the relationship between what we believe, the ideas that we believe, the theology that we have, and the way in which we, we live. And that sometimes gets lost in these conversations as well, because we end up being focused on, on what is believed. We don't think about how we say it. We don't think about, uh, about what the implications are for life coming out of it, that kind of thing oftentimes. And as a result, there's even a gap in how we talk about orthodoxy a lot of times. Sure. Uh, let me come at this from a, from a historical perspective. Uh, you know, the, the Nicene Creed itself and the, the Constantinopolitan version, both of these were drawing on a baptismal confession, earlier baptismal confession, which were widespread by the second century. Various churches were, were baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that actually meant something. They were agreeing to this Trinitarian narrative. God is the the Father who created all things, the Son who died, rose again, the Spirit who lives among us, who inspired the prophets, etc. So in baptism, they're being baptized into this story, but we also know the centrality of baptism. It was also a repentance and a commitment to live a certain lifestyle, and with that came not just Trinitarian instruction in, in the orthodoxy, mm -hmm. but also instruction, and it was usually took the, the form of the two ways mm -hmm. instruction. This is not how we live, the way of death or darkness. <laughs> That's not how we live. But this, <laughs> I don't know. But this I is the way we live. is really skewed. <laughs> the way of life, the way of light, uh, and so, in baptism, which baptism brought together both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So even though it's not explicit there in the creed, you're right. These are addressing specific issues of orthodoxy. But orthopraxy, too, was, uh, was reinforced prior to, during, and after baptism. And people were called to live to their according to the baptismal pledge. So they're there. Uh, and, and it is wrong for us to not acknowledge the function of baptism as both a confession of faith and a commitment to a certain lifestyle that is Christian and that is part of the faith just as much as the Trinitarian theology. Now, because, because we are living in a different world mm -hmm. and post the Enlightenment where we often separate orthodoxy from orthopraxy, which nobody would have done prior mm -hmm. to recently, uh, it, it becomes really important that we bring those two back together and talk about both. That we are, it's not enough to speak the truth, we have to speak the truth in love. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to be full of truth, we have to be full of grace and truth. And you're exactly right to call us back to that, particularly in traditions where 
the default position is as long as you believe the right things, as long as you confess the right things, as long as you say the right things, then then you're right with God. Yeah, there's a halo over your head uh, and you're in right. great shape. Yeah. Um, Which is, I think, here. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me let me let me go at this from a, a slightly different angle because there's another element of this email that I think we might miss if we just talk kind of in-house about about Christians and how they view and discuss things among themselves because there also is the question raised about things that are said outside the circle of Christians that might also be reflective of uh, of of truths to reflect on and there are really two ways into this conversation it seems to me one is uh, to say that oftentimes when Christians engage with culture, uh, particularly in the kind of um, time that we've come, come at more recently in which there's a lot of combat going on, it, it can tend to be that we always engage culture negatively, <clears throat> as if, as if there, there aren't echoes and whispers and voices out of the culture that don't aspire to things that are biblical in the mm. in the best sense of that term so how do we how do we help people appreciate that dimension and think through how to talk about culture in those places where those aspirations are being expressed and almost being searched for mm. yeah many times they're they are much more than echoes and hints and shadows that the truth is being screamed at us mm -hmm. Uh, there is a deep longing in every human heart for, for hope and meaning and significance. That there is, in God's world, it's impossible for imagers to fail to image God and to, to be drawn to Him. So that my simple answer is, and this will sound ironic, my simple answer is that we ought to listen a great deal more than we talk. Mm -hmm. And we ought to ask questions to understand instead of assuming, just because this person isn't using the language we use, just because this person isn't quoting a Bible verse, so this person doesn't actually express uh, the truth that, that's found in the scriptures. And then we who know the scriptures, we who know the Trinitarian narrative, we who know that the content of our hope, the basis of our hope, is the risen and returning Christ, can actually uh, connect that story to the longing of the heart that this person really doesn't know what he or she is, is longing for. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, I think, uh, go ahead. You were gonna, I thought you were looking at me to respond. I, you, you may. 
Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> You're I, on that end of the yeah, table. I actually, I actually do think that this is one of the ways we miss talking about culture in our churches a lot. And the, the, the aspirations, the hopes, the longings, the, in some cases, as you've said, the truth that is expressed. I mean, the, the, the concern for, you know, let me give you an example, the concern for justice that sometimes gets expressed in our culture. Um, sometimes that's distorted, but sometimes there's a very legitimate justice concern that's being expressed mm-hmm. that we need to hear and that we can turn a blind eye to if we're not, if we're not careful. The longings, for, the longings for significance, the longings for affirmation that come, the longings for being appreciated for who human beings are, that kind of thing. Those aspirations we see um, in writings, we see, uh, sometimes we see expressed in, in some of the more effective art that comes out of the culture. Some of the uh, lyrics in music um, can express those aspirations. And I think finding those touch points in our engagement can help us uh, in beginning to think about building bridges to why uh, why a Christian perspective on those hopes can help uh, fill them out. And let me add one more thing there. And sometimes they're expressed clearly in a way in which we learn. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes the bridge that's built is already being built. Mm-hmm. And sometimes sometimes we don't have to be the people who lay the foundation and, and, and lay the bridge across. That it, it, It's already there. It's coming towards it's us. It's coming towards us. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. God actually is doing things in his world that we're often unaware of mm-hmm. unless we listen and pay attention. And some of the the sentiment of the the email there is, you know, being exposed to various ideas, especially here at seminary, right? I, we have students that come here from very narrow backgrounds and perspectives, thinking that this is the only way, this is the only way to get to Walmart. And then you get here and you realize that, well, there are several other ways to get there that mommy and daddy didn't show me. And or that there are just different opinions that maybe they're wrong, but they've made me think about things differently. And so that would be kind of in the within the community discussions where we realize, look, we all share the same basic core doctrines of the faith, but we have differences on uh, on more peripheral matters Um, that generates a great discussion and growth opportunities, even in understanding that core better and highlighting that core. But the question does end with, what about those completely outside the faith, antagonistic to the faith? Atheists are even mentioned. And the reality is, though we assert that everything that the Bible affirms is true, not everything that's true is necessarily in the Bible. Um, and I, I tend to use the, the idea of uh, dentistry. There are a lot of things that my dentist knows that are not in the Bible, but I'm not going to say I need a Christian dentist because you know I want someone who practices Biblical dentistry, where they looked up all of the Proverbs passages. Proverbs three twenty three dentistry. <laughs> exactly. The passages that have to do with mouth and teeth and tongue, and they added them all up and, and came up with principles of dentistry. And I'm going to run from that kind of a person, right? But when it deals with dentistry, I'm going to go to that person. So there are there are realms of science, there are realms of uh, of history, there are uh, people who are completely outside the faith that do contribute uh, to our understanding of things in general, and then we come to scripture and we can see that with new eyes and just look at life differently. And so you can learn from various sources because truth comes to us from a variety of directions. And that's why these conversations are important when we were going back to what kind of where we started, which is when you talk about the use of the word biblical and you're sitting there and you're saying there actually is a combination 
a conversation underneath that word that needs to take place. And I actually think this is something that a lot of people in the church don't understand about mm-hmm. seminaries and how they operate. How can you, how can you possibly be reading this person? You know, kind of is the question. Or what's that book doing on the on the reading list for our for for someone who we've sent to you? That kind of thing. And and of course, part part of what you're dealing with is is a world of ideas in which in which there are a variety of angles to think about and things to learn from, whether they're stated uh, positively or even negatively in terms of how to interact with that. And I think sometimes out, out of a, and, and there's an underlying fear element that's expressed in, in what's being raised in the email that I think we have to uh, deal with. There's a very interesting passage in 1 Peter 3, in the very passage where it says, you know, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is uh, within you. And, and another part of it says, you know, but do so with, with meekness and respect as you're engaging. But the larger frame around that passage is even more fascinating in some ways because the way into that passage is, is that the way we're supposed to react to a world that challenges us and sometimes even treats us wrongly is to not do so out of fear, <clears throat> but to do so out of confidence. A confidence that our position and status in the Lord gives us the security that we need even to walk into a world that's hostile. Yeah. And, and I, I think I look at the church today and the way it engages, and I see a lot of engagement coming out of a, out of a fear, uh, out of a sense of a loss of control, uh, to which my reminder is you probably never had control of this to begin with. Uh, but, and I think that's an important factor in all of this as well. How do you engage uh, uh, faithfully and fearlessly? If I can say it that way. Or maybe sometimes the line between fear and faith is a really fine one. Mm-hmm. So, for example, read, reading recently, um, uh, Moses describes <clears throat> his leaving Egypt mm-hmm. after committing murder as have, he was afraid. Mm-hmm. The writer of Hebrews says that he left in faith. Mm-hmm. So maybe the faith and fear are not mutually exclusive. And maybe mm-hmm. the goal is not that we would engage fearlessly, mm-hmm. but that we would engage faithfully, recognizing our, 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 our fears, but, but responding in spite of, or responding, responding in spite of, instead of out of fear. Well, there's a healthy fear, if I can say it this way. There's a healthy fear, and then there's a fear that, is, that can be debilitating. And I, and I, I think that... Uh, that what what you're wrestling with here is is a case in which uh, the, the, one of the lines in that same passage, First Peter three passage, it begins by saying, "And if you do right, you have nothing to fear." <laughs> then the next line says, the very next line says, "But if you get punished for doing right, which means, well, wait a minute, didn't you just say if I did what's right was so so you you're actually diving into that passage in the midst of a tension of living in a fallen world." Yeah, right. And what a fallen world does. A fallen world isn't always just. Things don't always work out right. Sometimes the, the just are punished. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so how do you function well out of that? And it seems to me your faith has to be regarded in God. You have to fear the right things to fear, mm-hmm. the things that are destructive in your life and that can bring destruction to your life. But you also do so, I think, with an element of confidence that your security and identity are wrapped up in your faith and not in the circumstances in which you find yourself. Yeah, and I would say fear too, that you mentioned the paralyzing fear, Mm -hmm. which I would say is a fear that is not based on faith, but there's also the fear of the uh, the cornered animal that, Mm -hmm. that 
is the striking out in anger really mindlessly kind of attacks and that's unfortunately you see both of these things in in the ways christians attempt to engage in culture both of them i would argue are faithless kind mm-hmm. of fear and so uh, we have to have this clear confidence in the core understand that some things are worth talking about some things are worth fighting over that's this is true but if if we are doing our work of discipleship and uh, explain to people what the central core identifying uh, doctrines are of the faith and they have conviction of those things, I think that that faith is going to drive out that fear. Yeah, and I might just want, mm-hmm. as a person who is uh, dominated by fear, mm-hmm. um, if I wait until I have no fear mm-hmm. to do anything, I accomplish I mean, nothing. I'm paralyzed. Yeah. So I'm sitting here right. with lights and cameras, right. and the, right. this this absolutely terrifies me. You love me. this. Yeah, you? this absolutely <laughs> terrifies me. <laughs> but so if I wait until my fear is gone, we're never having this conversation. Right. But, but there is the, the, the point is, is that there is a there is a way of reacting out of fear exactly. that is completely destructive. Exactly right. And and I think some of what we see in the engagement of the church in our culture is coming out of this very uncomfortable fear place that really isn't in the it's trying to seize control because even though they say God's in control, they may not really believe it. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, Okay, well, we've got someone at the microphone here. We have a brave soul, so go for it. I have a question. What are some practical ways that we can kind of define some of these terms with people? Um, For example, I'm in a church that we recite a lot of confessions and creeds, and we sing from a hymnal, and I just look at people next to me, and, and I know, like, they have no idea what we're really saying and what we're really talking about, and there's a lot of great truth in this and there's so much context from church history but I know like especially when I sit next to like maybe an international student like there's so much great teaching here but um, I know they don't understand the terms and in my opinion if there's um, a big gap between orthodoxy and orthopraxy then we probably don't understand orthodoxy Mm -hmm. because it seems like that would be a a natural overflow and so even when I talk to someone about um, sin or grace or something like that in our context um, I don't think those terms are really well understood so what are some ways that we can kind of kind of bridge that that gap and that misunderstanding yeah let me let me say something here and uh, it's not a surprise of many of my students that I I really think um, we can solve or begin to address some of these problems by restoring Um, baptism to its original functioning place in the church not just as a uh, a, a, an opportunity for sentimentalism but an actual profession of faith which implies some sort of baptismal instruction so they know what Father Son and Holy Spirit really means and you have that that implies some instruction some some discipleship beforehand preparation for that but also a pivotal moment of, in their Christian life where they are committing to a certain lifestyle. And so you have orthodoxy and orthopraxy built into each other. And so anybody who would be a, a baptized believer would be uh, coming at this with a basic fundamental understanding of the language, the confession, the, the narrative, where they fit in this, and what, what's expected of them. So I think really in, in reducing baptism merely to a an opportunity to confess my faith in Jesus uh, and rather than embracing everything that it originally was meant to do 
um, has put us in that situation where we have uh, people who are, they believe in Jesus, but they don't really even know what that means. Mm. And so um, restoring this to its place, I think would, would at least give us an opportunity uh, in our ecclesiology to, um, to address some of those problems. Or to say that another way, uh, it, we have to teach. Uh, we, have to, we have to instruct, we have to catechize, and whether that catechism is prior to baptism, after, it, it right. really is not the end then either. It's a, mm -hmm. and, and, you, and I know you don't disagree. Uh, we, we need to actually teach. But, but I also think, and I learned this from Rich Mullins, I, I also think sometimes merely the confession of the words actually has an effect upon us. Mm -hmm. And that, that the Spirit of God, I, so I'm in a mm -hmm. church that we do the Apostles' Creed almost every week. Uh, I, I teach at Dallas Seminary and I read through the doctrinal statement regularly. And I, I, I see stuff that I hadn't seen before, that mm -hmm. somehow the, the language as it continues to transform me, it continues to, to have its way, we, um, it actually, we actually do come to a better understanding um, that none of us ever do understand this perfectly and completely. And so that bringing catechism and bringing uh, orthopraxy and orthodoxy together, teaching with, um, uh, and, and teaching consistently, and by teaching I don't simply mean standing up and giving mm -hmm. people information, right. that actually the creeds function as a, and confessions function as a teaching tool, as a, as a way to, to help, and they also do, do back to the earlier they conversation, remind us of the, they remind us of the core, and they also establish some of the boundaries. So this, is, this is the way we talk about who we are in this community. Now, those people in that community, they talk about it differently. They, we believe some of these things in common, but we express it and practice it differently. And so the, the really short answer, which is what I could have just said, the really <laughs> sh short answer is we teach them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually think where we start with the gospel has a long, mm -hmm. uh, takes us a long or a short way in terms of getting started. Because I think we tend to present the gospel in a way that almost has the feeling of, I get saved by checking the box, and I end up being delivered from a very warm place for a very long time. And uh, and in fact, what the gospel is about is an entry into a new life. You know, you do not get into the kingdom of God unless you are born again, born anew, however you want to think about that. And that newness of life is a completely new path and vista that you're now on, which then opens up all the content that we're talking about. And then you, and if you set people off on that kind of a journey from the start, by the way, the gospel is presented, it seems to me, you put yourself in a better position to follow through on the, on the other end. Um, at the, you're at the microphone, so go for it. Got a question about, I guess my passion coming into DTS is, you know, we, we, wanna, we wanna know that um, we trust that it's a solid school, solid teaching, great on, on the core. But among our peers, I know from, from years of ministry, there seems to be um, individuals have, uh, some have a smaller core and some have a larger core, and that kind of bleeds over. And, and my question is, is in a culture that's changing so much, um, my fear is that we become, and I, and I don't want to discredit the sovereignty of God, I understand that, and, and not having a lack of faith, but the reality of what becomes that defining line 
because the fear of seeing something that's been so solid over the years uh, become less and less solid on issues. Is, it, does that make sense? There's that, that, that defining line that, that I fear it could go away if we continue in a, in a, in a way that just becomes open to all things in certain areas. Because, for an example, uh, there may be the reality where one would say, um, well, we believe we could lose our salvation, and one would say, well, we're secure in our salvation for eternal security, et cetera. Um, where is that defining line that says, well, if that person truly doesn't uh, understand the gospel, it does not accept Jesus Christ by faith, then where do we draw that line? Because it is difficult when we deal with one another because we want to love our brothers and sisters, but there is a passion and a desire to make sure that we do not fall on our, our convictions of these essentials that are being attacked by the outside so dramatically. This, this is why I gave the illustration of the text critical problem, which obviously made such an impact that I've got to talk <laughs> about it again. But, and that, and a part of the point, part of the point of that illustration is to say, there are certain things with which I hold with, with, with tenacity. They're at the core, and they are biblically clear. Okay, even though they're debated among, you know, in some circles, they're clear. There are other things in which I recognize, if I read this passage and made a different decision here, I would have a different understanding about how I put that together. And I understand that's a part of this conversation. And when that is in play, it seems to me, that helps you in that disagreement. The people who say you can lose your salvation versus the people who say you're eternally secure have actually two sets of different concerns that they are pursuing when they answer that question that way in, in many ways. Um, the person who is, who is secure is probably resting in an understanding of God's sovereignty and involvement in, in the discussion that takes you in one direction. The person who says you can lose your salvation may well have gone through or be sensitive to experiences of people who on the surface looked very much like they were in but completely turned away at one point or another and they're trying to explain that theologically, that kind of thing. So the point of of the complexity of the answer is is that is that part of being a master of theology if I can put it in degree terms is actually appreciating not just what you believe but the nature of the conversation that you have as you believe it mm -hmm. and and that's what an education is about and so to me that's not a watering down that's actually a, a creating of a depth that allows you to negotiate the space of these differences without moving into a place where you just get emotional and react. You actually have some substance to work with. And that, that specific example fits into what we've been talking about, that our doctrinal statement takes a position on eternal security. Mm -hmm. But eternal security is not one of the seven core doctrines, so that represented in our student body are are those who who take it one way and others take it another way this is and and that we have to we have the opportunity here to actually talk to one another and wrestle together with the scriptures mm -hmm. on those very questions but but that that's in the the, the second circle 
I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I mean, sure it's a great that. example because if a person told me that, well, they believe they could lose their salvation, I'm, I might be concerned because there are different, there's a spectrum of reasons mm. why they think they can lose their salvation. If they think they can mm. lose their salvation because really um, it, they have this free will and this ability and this, this unfallen nature that allows them to choose or not to choose and it's all up to them, well, I would say they have a very poor understanding of sin and its effects and the price that Christ paid and all of that. And a little they, problem in theology proper exactly. as well. In <laughs> yeah. other words, right, it's connecting yeah. with things in the core that are far more fundamental and that's an effect. Or if they believe they can lose their salvation because they're classic Arminians and believe in provenient grace and God has restored some free will and there's relative security in that but not complete security, I would be a little less concerned. That's clearly not my view. But you see, so so we have to understand again going That's back to the centered set. Thing. Yes, yeah. this yeah. idea that there are positions within a position, and nuances within a within a theology. Okay, I think we got time for one more question. We got two people at the mics. Okay, go for it. Uh, because my my understanding is that historically, to be a heretic, you had to not just believe heresy, but also persist in it after mm -hmm. formal correction. Uh, because it's difficult to talk confessionally about the one Christian church anymore, is the, does the term heretic have any contemporary application, or is it a term we have to kind of put to the wayside because of the state of the church? That is a great question, and, and I define heretic, I should remember this, but uh, <laughs> willingly, knowingly, and stubbornly holding to doctrines contrary to the classic Orthodox faith, this core, the the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the Trinitarian Christological gospel narrative. Um, so if a, if a person comes to me and says they deny the deity of Christ, they believe he's just a man, um, and calls himself a Christian, yeah, I go to church, I believe in Jesus, but I don't think he's God. Uh, I have no problem saying that's heresy. Um, now, I might that is, hear, hear how I said that, that's heresy. Now, if I correct that person and say, um, yeah, but the Bible says this, and don't you believe that? Well, no, I mean, you know, and eventually they kind of turn from that. and be, Then I would say that's not a heretic, that this person has. I, so I tend to have some hope for people. It may be a bad instruction. Um, but if they persist on it and fight with me over Bible verses, and um, I have no problem saying that person is a heretic. Uh, if it doesn't claim to be a Christian, remember, you can only be a heretic if you claim to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, this is an infidel or an unbeliever or something like that. That's a different category. So, um, yeah, I don't have a problem doing that. But I reserve it, that word, for a very, very specific kind of case. And, and I think one of the reasons why the term ceases to have the kind of impact it had in the past is because we use it flippantly and we use it as a joke and so I, it's just yeah. simply not funny to use that term to call a brother or sister in christ uh, to basically say to that person go to hell yeah that's that, that, that's, that's how we funny. understand Her heresy yeah. is damnable doctrine and someone who embraces it is would we would say damned that is the it's, that is how that word originally is meant to be used so let's fight for the proper use of that term and um and and to save it for yeah. I mean that, again to if everybody's a heretic nobody's a heretic and, and to make the the point to reiterate his point there's a difference between heresy and a heretic that a, a yeah. person we ought to be really careful about applying the the designation to a person the the view is is fine correct well 
How is that for starters? Uh, I, I'm hopeful that you found the conversation uh, worth reflecting on because I think it. I think the way we use our language, the way we talk in theological controversy, is actually very important. In some cases, it's as important as the content discussion that we're having. And sometimes we don't give it enough attention, and we aren't sensitive enough about how we actually engage uh, these topics in the way we interact and disagree with one another. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for just the opportunity we have to be in a place where we can gather together as believers and reflect on what it is uh, that you have done for us. Uh, not just uh, the teaching of your word, but the presence of your spirit, uh, the immersion that we have in your grace, the presence that we have in your creation. You surround us with goodness, and we rejoice in that. May we, may we take what we have reflected on today and use it in a way so that when we teach or preach or live, that we do so in ways that are honoring to you and that represent in a helpful way the gospel to a world that certainly needs to hear good news. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Love well.